It's really, really good to see you. I'm so honored to be here with you. Would you come with me to Mark chapter 12? Mark chapter 12, as we continue to worship together, as we listen to Jesus remind us who we are and how we live as a church. But first, uh, let me introduce myself, particularly if you're fairly new here. Uh, My name is Matt Adair. I uh, have the honor of serving as our pastor for spiritual formation. Uh, A few things you should know about me. Um, I, I, I I don't wear ties often, but in 2001, I was ordained as a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. That's kind of a formal crowd, so lots of suits and ties, man, I'm telling you. And if it wasn't that, it was at least sport coats and dress pants. And then in 2004, uh, I moved to Athens, Georgia, and um, (laughs) if you say so, um, it's really hard being an Alabama fan living in Athens, Georgia, especially right now, but that's my burden to bear. So moved there in 2004 and became a lead pastor at the very, very, very old age of 28. Um, and our church was, me- was meeting in a school gym. So that didn't feel like a very suit and tie place. So I started wearing jeans. Um, and so these are actually my favorite pair of jeans. These are a pair of Levi 511s, which I've had for over a decade. And at the age of 47, that feels like a miracle. I think I need to explain the shoes, though. Um, if, you're, if you're wondering, do these look like a pair of shoes that Pastor Jason would wear? They are. <laughs> these are a pair of Air Jordan 3s, the Fire Reds. It's a small way for me to acknowledge and honor my uh, friend and brother and our senior pastor, but that isn't the reason I'm wearing them. Um, here's something you couldn't know. Um, these, these shoes are uh, Ebenezer stones. These are shoes of remembrance, for me personally, that tell the story about the faithfulness of our God. It's 1988, and I am uh, a 12-year-old, husky, fuzzy-headed, mullet-wearing seventh grader. And walking into my physical science class, are a pair of these shoes attached to somebody's legs. I don't know who, I can't remember. I just remember the shoes. And I remember in 1988, as a 12-year-old seventh grader, I wanted these shoes. These shoes did not fit into my family's spending plan. So I did not get these shoes. But when they re-released these shoes a few months ago, I got the shoes. Something interesting happened, though, when I, uh, I got the box and I opened it, and, and uh, the melody line changed for me. No longer were these shoes the status symbol for a 12-year-old fuzzy-headed, mullet-wearing husky kid. These shoes became a gift of God's grace to me. To that 12-year-old kid living in Montgomery, Alabama, my dad was an Air Force officer. He's a veteran of Desert Storm. So this weekend with Veterans Day, you know, it has a particular color and shape to it, right? Stars and stripes. And it means a lot to me and my family. It means a lot to, you know, our church and for our nation. So to all of you who have served, thank you very much. But... The faithfulness of God from Montgomery to West Texas to Birmingham to Athens to here 
to a kid who grew up loving baseball, to a kid who grew up loving music, everything from Amy Grant, Andre Crouch, from Petra to Public Enemy. I think my soul is stamped with some weird fusion of Stevie Wonder and Stevie Ray Vaughan. God has been faithful. When I was in Birmingham, I met Lindsay Page Anderson, the shiniest star in the sky. Bright, definitely beautiful. Silly, sophisticated. I was smart enough to ask her to marry me, and she chose to say yes. 25 years this next June. God is faithful. We have three boys Jonathan, who turns 18 in a couple of weeks. Will, who's 14, Ben's 11. Man, it's so cool to be their dad. Like, to be able to 12 my, tell my 12-year-old self, hey, man, like, you're going to grow up and you're going to have these three kids and they're going to be amazing. I think I'm like every other parent that my hope, and this isn't pressure, but my hope for them is just they, they take all whatever the good stuff is of me and leave behind the bad stuff, you know. I can't believe I get to be their dad. God is so incredibly faithful. I became a pastor in 1996, moved to Athens in 2004, 17 years of a lot of heaven, a little bit of heartache. We've been here a year, and it's been an incredible gift. Y'all have loved my family so well. You've given us time and space through this transition. You've pursued us. You've checked in on us. So I know these shoes are bright, but the mercy and grace of God is kind of bright too, Right? Thank you for loving us. Thank you for a great first year. I'm glad to say that our God is faithful. And our little space here in your world is just evidence of that to me. Mark chapter 12. I did all that just to give you time to get there. <laughs> I'm going to start reading in verse 28 for just a second. Here's what, I want to, uh, here's what I want you to remember from this text. I want you to remember that love is how we live. As a church, love is who we are, and love is how we live. And I think that this matters because I think it's easy to confuse what matters most in a church. Some of you are brain here, like you've never been part of a church before. You've never been part of this church. Maybe you're checking it out. So I just want to just, let's just draw the line here. Let's just lay it down really plain. Love is who we are, and love is how we live. I don't want us to confuse that. And I don't want to miss all the ways in which God has made that obvious over the 43-year history of this church. So love is how we live. That's what I want you to hear, hopefully, as we read this together. I'm in verse 28, Mark chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to read through verse 34 out of the English Standard Version. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said, that God is one and there is no other besides him. 
And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've heard from him. Why don't we now respond to him as we pray together? So, Lord, as we're gathered here in this place, would you stir up and shake up our desires? The desires of your people, both here in this church and in other churches, like Home Church, also here in Roswell, pastored by Gerald Fadiomi. Churches like Ignite Church in Daytona, pastored by Byron Cogdell. Ministries all over the world, like medical missions ministries led by our friend Herman Alb. Stir up our desires so that we as your people might produce a bumper crop of grace, gifts to each other, gifts to the nations, ultimately gifts to you as we work and wait for the return of our Savior and King who lives and reigns with you and your Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Love is how we live. Here's the story. If I was going to title what we just read, I would say it this way. Jesus finds a surprising tag team partner. Now, when Mark writes his version of the story of Jesus, he writes it as a three-act play. The first act, chapters 1 through 8, we learn who Jesus is. The second act, in chapters 9 and 10, we discover what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the saving King. And then in the third act, from chapters 11 through 16, we find out how Jesus becomes the saving King. And that's where we are now. We're in the third act. Last week, Jesus rides into the royal city of Jerusalem. He asserts his authority over the temple. And between last week in that sermon and this week where we are now, Jesus is confronted by and confronts Jewish religious leaders who uh, now want to kill Jesus. So that takes me to October 24th, 1986. It's four days before my 11th birthday. It's four days after I have been hit by a car crossing a street going to school. 16-year-old kid, late to football practice, didn't see the red light, didn't see me. And so now, four days later, I find myself in my dad's lazy boy recliner and my body broken up pretty good. What I don't know is hundreds of miles away in a professional wrestling ring wrapped by a steel cage, in walks our hero, the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Across the ring, inside that steel cage, are two members of the diabolical four horsemen. Now, normally, because he's our hero, when Dusty would enter from the locker room, the crowd would just go wild. But tonight, they're silent. It isn't because Dusty comes out without a partner, but he doesn't have his usual partner. Now, just time out. Spoiler, professional wrestling is fake. 
Santa Claus, Easter Bunny. But in real life, Dusty's tag team partner, again, 1986. Magnum PI? Uh-uh. Pro wrestling, we had Magnum TA. Long, blondish hair, big mustache. His real name was Terry Allen. Ten days before, October 14th, he had been in a real-life car crash that almost killed him and ended his wrestling career. So Dusty doesn't have his regular tag team partner. That's the problem. His new tag team partner, as they step into the ring together, was none other than the six-foot-five, 300-pound, shaved-head, Fu Manchu-wearing Russian nightmare Nikita Koloff. See, here's the problem. For months and match after match after match, Rhodes and Koloff had fought against each other. And now, tonight, they step into the ring together. Well, Dusty doing what Dusty does, he gets into the ring, goes straight in, and he's getting beat up by both the horsemen, and Koloff is standing at the door, just standing at the entrance. And the crowd is looking at Koloff, doing nothing. And they're looking at Rhodes, getting beat up. And they look at Koloff, still doing nothing. And they look at Rhodes, still getting beat up. And you can just hear the crowd, just, you can just, just feel the tension. Until finally, wham, Koloff decides, jumps into the ring, attacks the horseman, stomps a mud hole in one of them, kicks him out of the ring. They take care of the other guy. And I don't know what y'all think about how the Cold War ended, but I'm telling you, 1986, October 24th, Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff come together and form the superpowers, the American dream, the Russian nightmare. A surprising tag team partner. Now, Rewind 1950 years and go into the temple area outside of Jerusalem. And here is Jesus after wave, after wave, after wave, after wave. It's the chief priests, it's the elders, it's the scribes. It's people who are loyal to King Herod. It just, he's being ambushed with questions that aren't really questions, yeah? And so when you get to our text and when you see and another scribe, another scholar, another Torah teacher ask a question, you're like, oh, here we go again. Except there's something that Mark adds here that's peculiar. Mark doesn't add a lot of character description, but he does here. In verse 28, it says, A scribe comes up and hears all this arguing, but seeing that he answered him, them well, he asked Jesus. So there's something about the way he asked the question. I don't know, something in his face, where you kind of pick up on, is this acceptance? Is this admiration? But somehow, this is not Jesus' enemy. This is his partner. Love is how we live. Now, here's a question. Here's our question. What is the most important commandment? There are 613 of them, by the way. Now, you might not be super familiar with Christianity or the Bible, but you might know that there are 10 sort of big ones. And out of these 10 commandments, you might expect Jesus to choose one of them and go, this is the most important. But he doesn't do that. He goes to a different place in the Torah, which are the first five books in our scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he goes to Deuteronomy, and he pulls out the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. It's right there in your text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. 
Have you ever wondered why God gives commands to people? This seems important to me because, I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard people, smart people, say something like this, that the Jewish faith is sort of this journey towards salvation. It's a path to salvation that you achieve if you follow all 613 of these laws perfectly. Here's the problem that I ran into. Maybe you have too as you've read the Scriptures. When you read through the story, you get from Genesis into Exodus, and it's there in Exodus that God saves His people. They are His people. He has saved them. And it is then, after they have been saved, that He gives them these commands. So they got me thinking, okay, so what is this? If this isn't a, a, a way for us to be saved, then what might it be? And what I've come to believe, and maybe this will be helpful to you, is that what God is doing is he's saying, my commands are a way for me to gather people together and to help them understand not only what matters most to me, not only what makes a difference in this world, but who they really are and how they're supposed to live. So one way that I might say it is this, that God's commands are not for salvation, but they are for formation. This is how we know who we are. God's commands help us to understand what we're supposed to live like. God's commands are the very thing that make us holy. They're the things that make us distinct and different from the world around us. So when Jesus takes this Jewish Pledge of Allegiance, the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, he's clarifying what matters most to him, what matters most in this world, and who his people are supposed to be, how they're supposed to live, what they're supposed to be known for, and what he is transforming them into. So here's the truth. The answer to the question, what is the most important commandment? It's this. Loving God. It's right there, right? Love is who we are. Love is how we live. If we just listen to Jesus, he says loving God is the most important commandment. Loving God is what makes his people holy, different, distinct in the world. Loving God is the heart of who we are. Loving God is how we live. And, and, and people who love God, that is, that is the people that he is forming us and transforming us into. What does that love look like? What does it look like to love God? Jesus doesn't stop, he keeps on going, and he helps us. And he says, the way that we love God is by loving neighbor. Let me translate it right for us here as a church. What he's saying is that we love God as a church when each and every individual loves each and every other individual as much as we love ourselves. That's the way we love God. That's what I'm seeing right here in this text. The fusion of love, and God, of love of God and love of neighbor, well, it shows up in Matthew's version of the story of Jesus. It shows up in Luke's version of the story of Jesus. And it shows up in Mark. And in all three, they have slightly different perspectives on who are we talking about when we talk about loving our neighbor. You might know that Mark is writing to an intercultural church in the city of Rome. He's writing to a church that is filled with Jews and Greeks and Romans and he's writing about an event that some of them were actually there. They were listening to Jesus because this is just a, maybe a few decades after Jesus said this as he's writing to this church. And what they would have known 
And what Mark would have known is that when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, he's talking about loving all the people that were in that temple area, people committed, living in allegiance to this one true God, but they were people from all over the world. It was an intercultural community. Your neighbor were people of different cultures. And again, cultures can't be limited to ethnicity, but it includes that. So you can go to Acts 2, which happens just weeks after the events here that we're talking about with Jesus, and see that you had people that were Greek, you had people that were Roman, you had people from Arabia, you had people all over the Mediterranean basin, all kinds of different cultures. So maybe to bring it to an even more fine point, Mark is saying, I believe, to a church in Rome and a church here in Roswell, that loving God looks like you and me loving people from different cultures as much as we love ourselves and people from our own culture. I don't think that's too shocking or surprising there, but I think there it is right there for us. It's a reminder that love is how we live, and this is what love looks like. Now, I think that that creates an opportunity for us, an opportunity. It's an opportunity for our church to keep choosing love. And there are lots of questions about the relationship between Christians, between disciples of Jesus and these 613 commands. A lot of that's beyond the scope of our time together this morning, but I can say this. What Jesus is teaching us here about love of God and love of neighbor, it absolutely shapes our life together. I think part of the reason when we read through the Torah, when we read through Genesis, Exodus, we all get stuck in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what confuses us is that not only is this written about a different time and place, but even the laws don't sound like what we think in terms of laws and rules. Again, a lot of that's too much for us to cover here today, but I think it's helpful for me to say this out loud to you. Jesus is not inviting us to become nomadic Jews living in the Middle East 3,500 years ago. But he's inviting us to take the same love of God and love of neighbor and to apply it into our time, into our context, here, inside this community. That's the invitation, and that's the opportunity. And quite honestly, it's what we've been doing for 43 years, y'all. I know some of you are guests here. You're, you're new. Every sermon here is somebody's first sermon here. And I know that whether it's here or somewhere else, if you've been part of a church for more than a minute, you carry around some kind of hurt. We're broken people living in a broken world. You put a bunch of us together and people are going to get broken. We don't want to do that, but it happens. I don't think we have to hide it. I don't think we have to ignore it. But that's not the only part of our story. If you've been here, if you've been part of any church, but let's just talk about those of us who have been here. You can think about and answer this question. Who here has loved me? How have I been loved? And just wait for the faces and the moments to just begin to percolate, to come to the surface. And you can see how we have been loved. And probably you can think of ways in which you have loved other people. As those things are happening in your brain and coming into your memory, let me just point out a few bright lights that I wouldn't want you to miss. The first is this, I, I would never want us to take for granted that we have hundreds of people who have made an intentional choice to be part of an intercultural community. You might know the statistics, but the vast majority of churches across this nation, that is not the case, particularly when it becomes, when we talk about the, the, the mingling 
of different ethnic cultures. Y'all have made that choice. It's an act of love. There's measurable benefits, but it's costly. It's risky. And I don't ever want us to take it for granted. So thank you for making that choice. Thank you for choosing to love in this particular way. Today is Stand Sunday, which is an opportunity across the nation for churches to recognize, stand in solidarity and honor and partner with men and women, families who are investing in the foster care system. Out in the lobby when you leave today, there's a ministry called Living 127. Its roots are here in our church. And they continue to do wonderful work to find people who God has invited to give more than a small part of their life to foster kids. There's this overarching vision of adoption. There's the encouragement for you to not do more, but certainly not do less than God's called you to. And then they do a great job of resourcing these families to make sure they have what they need. Because love is how we live. And in a world where you have kids that are so often ignored, we go, no, mm -mm, we love them. And so we have an opportunity to love those families who are investing in the foster care system by partnering with Living 127. So I would love for you to talk to them when we're done here today. And then before we leave here today, after I'm done preaching, um, we have a, a short video that I don't want to spoil it, but it's just going to be a reminder of one particular powerful way in which we have demonstrated that we are a people who have chosen to love. Love is how we live. So this is not brand new, but we know that we're not done yet, right? We know that every day presents both opportunities and challenges to love. We have come to believe that this work of transformation that Jesus is doing in us, we talk about life change. Here's what life change looks and sounds like. Jesus will not be finished with us until we become the kind of men and women for which we can't even conceive of anything other than love, not just for our friends, not for people who are like us, but even for our enemies. It's one thing to not say or do something unloving. It's another thing for the thought to not even cross your mind, for the beat to not even get into your heart. But that, and until Jesus gets us there, he's not done with us yet. So every day is a choice to love God and love neighbor. So how do we do that? How do we do it today? I'll give you a real simple way as you leave. It's smiles and thank yous. It's giving people the, the joy of your smiling face. And it's saying thank you. You can just walk around. Like, you can go say thank you to anybody who it's pretty obvious they've been trying to help make this happen today. But you can just say thank you. Just wander around. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why? Because you're not here alone. They showed up too. It's an act of love. There are real challenges to love. For some reason, we are the last state to finish midterm elections. How long, O oh Lord? How long? I'm just talking about the political ads. I think we all want to be done with those, but here's the reality. In this room, there are men and women in the name of Jesus who have and will vote for Herschel Walker. And there are people in this room who in the name of Jesus have and will vote for Raphael Warnock. And that creates a unique opportunity and challenge that I think comes with this invitation from Jesus himself. Whoever you are, wherever you are, 
to hear the voice of Jesus saying to you, will you choose to love your political enemy as much and in the same way as you love yourself? Now, to be clear, um, when we talk about love as followers of Jesus, that is not a choice between just being nice and tolerant. Because our love is shaped by the contours and convictions of the kingdom of God that we are trying to apply wisely in a broken world. So it's complicated. What it means is that when we talk about loving people well, we talk about looking at situations and we're trying to figure out what, does it, what should this look like within the kingdom of God. And we choose to love with both kindness and courage. So whether it's politics or anything else, anytime you see someone that seems like they're wandering away from Jesus, we love by choosing kindness and always assuming the best of them. And we also choose courage by seeing what we see and initiating a conversation where we ask lots of questions, not to try to score points, but to seek to understand. That's what love looks like. It's not just being nice or being tolerant, it's being kind and courageous. Because nothing matters more than love. Nothing. Is this not what the Torah teacher says here in verses 32 and 33? Jesus says, this is what it looks like. The most important commandment is loving God and loving neighbor. The, the teacher says, it is. As a matter of fact, it's much more important. What does he say here? Burnt offerings and sacrifices, which we don't do here, Fellowship Bible Church. But we do have theological convictions. And we do have philosophical preferences. So let me translate it. Loving God and loving neighbor is much more important than our theological convictions and our philosophical preferences. I didn't say those aren't important. I said that love is much more important. Nothing matters more than love. Love is how we live. Is it hard? Yes, just beyond our grasp. But that's what we've been invited into. But it's a challenge and an opportunity. We want to do it. It's beyond us. So we need some good news. Here's the good news, okay? When you look at this text and you see and hear Jesus fusing love of God and love of neighbor together, what you are seeing and witnessing is him demonstrating his authority, not just over the temple, like last week flipping tables. He's demonstrating his authority over Torah. He is not simply a rabbi coming to fulfill the Torah, even though he does. He's saying, I get to shape it. I get to define it. I get to work these things together. So loving God with every fiber of your being is displayed primarily in the way that you treat the people around you. What that means is, is that what we see as Jesus demonstrates his authority is the reality that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the saving king. And that phrase, Jesus is the saving king, is the root note of the power chord of this big story that we call the gospel. So when you put it together in this text, because Jesus is the saving king, love is how we live. We're not just doing this because that's just who we think we should be. We're doing this and we live this way because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the saving king, love is how we live. Why do we love this way? First John comes to mind, right? 
We love because he first loved us. And we know how the story goes. At least most of us do. It's Tuesday when all this is happening in Mark chapter 12. On Friday, Jesus dies on a Roman cross. The Jewish religious leaders who wanted him dead have succeeded in having him killed. But he doesn't die as a revolutionary whose efforts are thwarted. He dies as Isaiah's suffering servant. Who rejects violence and pride, choosing love and service instead. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life so that so many people could be freed and liberated from sin and sinfulness. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Jesus as the embodiment of the glory of God and here on a cross is the glorious God dying and suffering for the people that he came to save. Why? Because he's the saving king. And the saving king loves the people that he came to save and to rule over. And I know that we don't have a lot of details here about what it looks like to love. Jesus, what do you mean by love? He doesn't answer. But Jesus pulled that idea of loving neighbor from Leviticus 19. If you go through Leviticus, here's what love sounds like. It sounds like things like this. It's right there in the text in Leviticus. Love sounds like respecting your parents taking care of the poor, honoring your commitments, respecting private property. Love looks like taking care of those with special needs. Love looks like pursuing justice for the marginalized and vulnerable. Love looks like sexual integrity and wholeness. Love looks like demonstrating that love towards your enemies. It's not everything. But in real ways, that's what love looks like. That's what it means for us when we say love is how we live. And the only way and the only reason we can do that is because we have been so well loved by Jesus. We love because Jesus loves us. You see, when we think about what is it that animates us, what, what is it that leads us to say, yes, I will do it, and then go actually do it? What leads to actual loving actions is us experiencing the love of God for us, even in this room. Even as I'm speaking, what you begin to sense in your mind is the kind of love from God that does begin to inflame your heart, that gives rest to your soul, that brings clarity of purpose to mind, and gives you the strength to love. This is what Jesus does. It's what he's committed to. He isn't asking to prove anything to him. It is him simply asking us to partner with him and let him do the heavy lifting. So where we are, and the invitation is for us to just simply look and see what Jesus has done for us. Take in all that you know and all you've experienced of his love, a love that never fails us, a love that never wanders or wavers, a love that never turns away from us. And it's because of that, and as you even hear those words and remember how you've experienced that in your life, as you feel things beginning to bubble in your soul and your heart begins to beat a little bit different and your mind starts swirling with different ideas and you start uh, coming up with plans that you plan to actually live out and put one foot in front of the other. All of that is because of the love of Jesus that has gotten inside of you and is beginning and continuing to transform you. 
And so it's inside of a church when all of that starts to bubble up and percolate that I think as we hear all of the commotion, all the activity, all the things that you see in these halls, all the things that you see as you see the ways we're being involved out in the community, that what you hear Jesus saying in the background is, man, y'all are close to the kingdom of God. Would you like to step in? What does he say in verse 34? This Torah teacher says, hey, love is more important than anything else. And Jesus looks at him and says, that's pretty wise. Which means that's exactly what God intends. And he looks at this man and he says, you're so close to the kingdom of God. Why? Because this Torah teacher has acknowledged the authority of Jesus. Jesus is right. And now there's an invitation to this man to step into the kingdom by declaring his allegiance to Jesus. That's the invitation that I want to make sure we don't miss today. It might be that you're here and you've been trying to sort out this whole Christianity and faith thing, and maybe you're at a place, I don't know your story, I don't know what's going on, but maybe you've come to a place, I don't even have to push hard, but you're at a place where you, you acknowledge. When we say Jesus is the Savior and King, Jesus is the one who can get people out of all the messes that they've created and all the things that have happened to them. And he's the one who gets to call the shots in our life. You're so close to the kingdom of God. Stepping into the kingdom is simply an act of allegiance. You can call it faith, you can call it trust, you can call it belief, whatever. But it's simply the declaration. It can be a declaration that's as simple as this. Jesus, you are my savior and king. The kingdom of God is not Harry Potter world. So this is not some kind of magic spell. But there's something about the shaping of words in the English language that God meets and creates brand new life. So that's the invitation. You may be like, for the first time, I think I'm ready to say those things out loud. And I'm going to actually give you an opportunity to say in just a minute. I'm going to count to three and you can say, Jesus, you are my Savior and King. You can whisper it, you can shout it, you can sing it. Mm. But here's the thing. I don't like to isolate people. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity for us as a spiritual practice to declare our allegiance to Jesus together. So this might not be your first time. You may have made a public profession of faith. You may have been baptized. You may have stood up in front of a group of people and said, Jesus is my Savior King a year ago, a decade ago, five decades ago. But I'm giving you an opportunity to do it together as part of this church. So I'm going to count to three. And if you have ever, whether today's your first time or the five bazillionth time you've done this, give you an opportunity to step into the kingdom once again and declare your allegiance to Jesus. I'm going to count to three, and you're going to say, you can whisper it, you can shout it, and sing it. I'm good with all of it. Jesus, you are my Savior and King. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Jesus, you are my Savior and King. That's pretty good. I think we can do a little better, though. Let's give it another go. I'm going to count to three. We're going to say it again. One, two, three. Jesus, you are my Savior and King. Better. Why don't we stand up? I think we might get us a little more of a liftoff even. And I don't want you to miss what this is. We don't take it for granted. You've declared your allegiance before, and now you're declaring it again, and you're doing it in the presence of others. Like, look around. Y'all aren't alone. You're not alone. Look at all these people, some of whom you've known, some of whom you've never seen, some of whom you might never see again until they're on this side of heaven. But here we are, in this moment, together. 
Think about that person who for the first time is declaring their allegiance and what this means to them. Think about that person who's struggling with doubts and this is a lifeline to them. Think about the person who's been following Jesus forever and they know that they may have days or weeks, not decades, and you have an opportunity to encourage them that this was all not a waste of time. So from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, from the inside all the way out, let's give this thing a go. On the count of three. One, two, three. Jesus, you are my Savior and King. And Jesus, because you are our Savior and King, love is how we have lived and how we intend to live today and each day moving forward. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, love is how we live.